Hi, this is Janet Lansbury. Welcome to Unruffled. Today, I have a special guest joining me, Rick Ackerley. Rick is a nationally recognized educator, author, and speaker with a master's in education from Harvard University. And in his first book, The Genius in Every Child, Encouraging Character, Curiosity, and Creativity in Children, Rick explains that genius is not just about intelligence and aptitude. It's also a word that embodies our inner soul, nature, and character. His heartwarming stories as a former principal and father shed insight into children and the process of education. And Rick has served as a head of five schools since 1974, and he currently consults with schools and speaks to parent groups around the country. He publishes essays on parenting and education weekly on his blog, GeniusInChildren.com. So I know you'll be excited to hear from him. First, I want to talk about another important subject, self-care. Between kids, work, and social commitments, we all know that life can be hectic, and it's easy to forget about our own health and our well-being. Noom is a habit-changing lifestyle app that helps empower you to be as mindful of yourself as you are of your kids and family. You pick your goals, and Noom personalizes a program to help you make them happen in just 10 minutes a day. So we all have 10 minutes a day, right? Noom was designed by psychologists to help you change negative or unwanted behavior. Once you understand why you do what you do, it's easier to change unhealthy habits. It's not about willpower or shaming. You know how I feel about shaming. And there's no finish line. Noom wants to help you develop a healthy, mindful lifestyle that you can maintain in the long run. And what I love about Noom is that you're not doing this alone. First, you have access to the Noom community, people who are going through the same things as you and can share their experience. And if you get off track, you get tips to get right back on. Plus, you're assigned your own goal specialist, a real person for support. Whatever your goals are, eating better to feel better, having more energy, maybe enjoying exercise again, Noom works with your lifestyle to help you feel good about your choices. You can sign up for a free trial today at Noom.com respect. That's Noom, N-O-O-M dot respect. And Noom asks for just 10 mindful minutes a day, and they'll support your journey 24-7. Check it out at Noom.com respect and start your free trial today. So here he is. Hello, Rick. Hi, Janet. How are you? Thank you so much for being willing to come on and share with us. Always my pleasure. You were probably one of the first comrades that I uh, met online, social media. I can't even remember how we connected. I remember you were one of my first Twitter friends, and I quoted you after following you a little while. Janet Lansbury says children are our whole people, and I put that on one of my early blogs. It's been such a gift to have your support, your corroboration, your insights from your very different perspective that are completely compatible with mine, I feel. Yeah. Really, I can't appreciate you enough. Thank you, and likewise. What I wanted to focus on with you today is when we talk about things like school readiness and how to give our children the tools or help them hone the tools that they need to succeed and thrive. And as you and I both know, thriving in school is the same as thriving in life. We need the same traits. Yes. And you have 
of course, this longtime perspective as a problem solver type administrator. You worked directly with a lot of the children when they were having issues. And I was wondering if you had seen certain trends or noticed certain traits that stood out as signs that children could thrive in these environments. Well, the most important research, if someone could read only one thing, it would be Alison Gopnik. She's written a couple, at least a couple of really good books, or go to one of her TED Talks. The core concept is that kids are not empty vessels to be filled up with information. They're not so much needing to be trained. They are scientists, that they are born scientists, and that every move they make for the first five years of their lives is testing the environment. So every move they make is a hypothesis, and they test that hypothesis against that reality, and they readjust the hypothesis, and they keep going like that. Every minute of every day, they're studying how people react, how to build relationships, how to make friends, how to collaborate. Everything from playing with Legos to building a treehouse or playing a game, eating dinner or helping the family prepare for dinner, or all of that, they're learning how to make it in the world. So that by the time they walk in the door of a kindergarten, they have been doing research on the world for 43,000 hours. But the most important thing, which is ignored by most schools and not handled that well by many parents, is that they think we have to do stuff to kids to get them educated. And that's completely opposite. We have to create the conditions in which we facilitate them doing it. Well, they are the experts at this, right? That's what Alison Gopnik says. That's right. Act as if they are the experts. Well, they really are because they're built to learn more in these early years than in the whole rest of their lives put together in terms of gathering knowledge. So we don't want to get in the way of that. We want to support that and understand that they know what they're doing. Yes. Treat them as if they know what they're doing. And of course, they need our boundaries and to help keep them safe and keep them appropriate. But yes, absolutely. I love that you brought up Alison Gopnik because I'm in love with all the understanding that she's brought to the public about the way children learn and how, again, they are the experts and they've got the tools. And we do make that mistake, I think, as parents, even when we understand this research that they are absorbing and learning so much in these early years, it can be tempting to want to say, well, let me give them numbers and letters and colors, math problems, let me put more stuff into them. But the way that they're taking things in is so much more profound. They're practicing their higher learning abilities. That's right. Yeah. I think it's very important for parents who are looking forward to school or looking forward with terror to school or whatever, anxiety, fear, (laughs) or confidence. I hear over and over again that the main thing is reading. It's all about reading. Well, first of all, it's not all about reading, but let's just say it is all about reading. The average age at which a child is physiologically ready in every way is six and a half, which is why first grade is when it used to be reading is taught, quote, taught. But the range at which someone is ready to read is anywhere from three years old to nine years old. Not when they do read, But when they're physiologically and neurologically ready to read, that varies a lot between kids. And our whole culture is 
oh my God, we got to get them reading early. If they're not reading by the time they're ready for kindergarten, you know, they're going to be failing. That is like trying to take a car that's in second gear and drive it 60 miles an hour. You have to work with the child at their point of readiness. And they can be ready for other things if you put words in front of them and their eyes bounce off the page. That's fine. That's fine. See what they are ready to do and help them do things that they're ready to do. It'll all feed into reading when it's time for them to read because the entire world, their, their environment, is so full of letters and numbers and everybody else is doing it. At some point, they're going to want to do it and they'll, in their own way, figure out how to do it. I mean, I didn't read till I was in fifth grade. And I got a great education. I went to Williams College. I went to Harvard Graduate School. And I've written the books. It's not a killer if you can't read. How was that handled when you were in school? Because that's, of course, the danger when we do try to harness some types of knowledge that children aren't ready for, that they lose confidence in themselves as learners. What gets thwarted is this most precious thing that we have, which is, I'm capable I can do things, I can learn, and I know what I'm doing. That is the precious part that we don't want to interfere with. How did that go for you? Were you made to feel less than or? Let's start with the, the blessings that made it easier. The first is that my parents didn't let on much that they were anxious about it. And they didn't feed that anxiety to me. They acted as if, I'm accountable to my teacher, and the teacher's accountable for doing whatever is necessary to get me to read. It wasn't that I couldn't read, it was that I was a slow reader. I mean, it, it didn't feel good to be behind other people in reading. I do remember in first grade, we were sitting in circles, and we were literally reading See Jane Run. It was those books. And uh, Johnny read See Jane Run, look, look, look. And then it got to me. And I haltingly read the words that were in front of me, and we went around the circle, and it was okay. A week later or something like that, maybe the next day, Johnny is in a different group, and I'm in this group. And I said, wait, uh, why is Johnny in that other group? A, Johnny was my friend, and B, I compared myself to Johnny. I used Johnny as sort of a benchmark for how I was doing, and I thought I was keeping up with him. And the teacher said, that's the good reading group and you're in the slow reading group. And, and I went, wait, 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 that's not correct. I've been comparing myself to Johnny and we're the same. She said, no, you aren't. He's a better reader than you. And that was a blow. That was not good. It didn't ruin me. And I kept trying to read. And, you know, my parents had books by the side of my bed, mostly picture books, but I I learned how to read. But one of the real blessings I had is that dyslexia hadn't been invented yet. I'm sure I would have been diagnosed with dyslexia, but it wouldn't have done me any good. I needed to learn how to read in my own way. And the entire environment was conspiring to get me to read, and I did. I'm still a slow reader because I read every word and I think about it and I go back my wife, who's a very fast reader, says, you know, everybody says I'm a good reader and you're a bad reader. But the thing is, I can read a whole book in a weekend, but I don't remember a thing. And you remember everything you read. So wow. who's a good reader and who's a bad reader? Schools and parents need to be very careful about getting all bent out of shape about reading 
and especially at an early age, because there's so many other pathways to success. Not that there's nothing to worry about, but worrying is not that constructive. That's all. Right. It's that thing of children not being able to learn as well when there's too much stress in the environment. Yes. And what you're also reminding me of with your comment about comprehension is that when children are younger, there are some children that are vocalizing language much earlier than others. Parents get worried about that. And yes, of course, like you said, there's things to look at, maybe get checked at some point. But oftentimes that child is comprehending just as much, if not more, as the child who's speaking. Yes. It's one of the neuroses in our society. Get there quicker, faster, sooner, and you'll be better. Right. So one of my daughters, she's a teacher. She has three sons. None of them spoke at all fluently until four and a half years old. None of them. I don't know why. But under those circumstances, a lot of people, including me, might be inclined to think, well, they just don't know what's going on. Maybe they're even stupid. They don't seem to know stuff. That was wrong. They are so observant. They're picking up everything. The words that we spoke to them were in their head. And it really came clear to me when the first one, from between four and a half and five, he started to stutter. And his mother said, gee, maybe we should get him tested. And I said, well, let's just wait a little bit. I have a hypothesis that he's having a motor problem. He knows the words, he hears the words, he knows the meaning, he knows what's going on, but there's some glitch between that and it coming out of his mouth. And sure enough, his stuttering was working through this motor problem. By five, he was speaking quite fluently. He's 11 now, he's getting good grades in school and you should see him in action. Absolutely no dysfunction whatsoever. He's right up there with everybody else. But just another example of, in our society, one of the neuroses is the faster you move up the ladder, the smarter, better, more successful you will be. And that's wrong. It's just not correct. There's no data to support that at all. The only thing I feel like earlier is better in is for the parents to start trusting their child as a capable person. Because the comprehension thing, I see it in infants. When you start talking to infants about what you're doing with them, they respond as if they understand because they do. So a child who's speaking at age two, let's say speaking words, has absorbed all this language for years already. And that's kind of what I was saying about my grandsons. It's not that they didn't understand. It's not that they didn't know the words and they could follow directions. And they, it wasn't that they didn't know what was going on. But to make like it's a problem is a mistake. It's just how they're developing. And that's sort of a theme running through everything you say and what you said in the very beginning. The first step is to believe in them. Know that in their own peculiar, sometimes distressing way, they will develop. And Magda Gerber said this all along, not these exact words, but why can't we enjoy what children are doing instead of focusing on what they're not doing. And that aligns directly with your book, The Genius in Every Child. Yes. As parents, we're always going to worry about something. There's always something to worry about. I know that. I have three children. They're all adults now. I'm always worried about them. So to tame our own worries and take that leap of faith to trust, it is very challenging. It's not easy. 
But it's so important that we encourage what our child does have. And that not only helps them to hone those talents and foster them, but it, it helps them on this most important level of the self-confidence, the belief in self as able. So Howard Gardner is important because he shows that one's intelligence, one's self, one's way of manifesting in the world, what you're good at, what you're not good at, will show up in a wide variety of ways. There are all sorts of different ways that the complex organism of the brain organizes itself. For instance, when I was a kid, I was always on the floor building things. I played with blocks and the precursors of Legos, and nobody would have said, oh, that's going to really help you in math someday. But it did. I can literally say that when, was it in fifth grade, we started multiplying and dividing fractions. It was not at all a surprise to me that four times one over two equals two because we had a block and then we had half blocks and four half blocks equals a double. That was built into my brain from block building. So it was easy when it came time to put symbols to it. And other people who hadn't been building with blocks found it very difficult. It's just another way of saying what you've been saying all along and what Gerber says is trust their way of approaching the world of doing their research on the world, of diagnosing the world, and support it, and engage with it, ask questions, participate, make it your research project. Gosh, how does he learn? How does she handle this? And you know, they come home, so-and-so's picking on me. Well, tell me about that. How does that work? Tell me what, exactly what happened on the playground. Right? What did she do? What did you do? Not with any sort of got to solve this problem, because it's not your problem. It's the kid's problem. Exactly. Is that what you did as, a, as an administrator? When Oh, yeah. So, you know, the normal thing to do is if two kids, third graders, are fighting on the playground or something like that, and they're sent to my office, the normal thing to do is sit them both down and say, you know, what's your side of the story? What's your side of the story? You know, because it takes two to tango. Well, it may take two to tango, but that's not the best way to empower each child to become better and better at negotiating the world. I would send one end of the hall to sit in a chair in the hallway while I talked to one of them. And I would say, what did you do to get yourself here? And the child might say, I didn't do anything. The teacher's being unfair. Okay, but what did you do? Well, it's no fair because she, okay, the next word out of your mouth has to be I, and then there's a verb, and then you can say anything you want. I, what? poked my finger in his eye. Okay. In other words, I'm trying to maximize everybody's responsibility. 100% zero, not 50-50. Sure, it, technically it takes two to tango, but that's disempowering. I want every kid to know how not to get sent to my office. <laughs> that's brilliant. On their own. Okay. You made a mistake. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Okay. Say so you're sorry. Will that work? Will that be sufficient? It's not sufficient. What do you have to do? Well, maybe you have to all problem solve. That person in front of me is the only person that matters right now. The person out in the hallway, that'll come. The teacher who you know wants to make sure I handle the problem properly, that'll happen later. But that student in front of me is the only thing that matters right now. And what matters about that student? Their empowerment. 
their self-actualization, their ability to do what they want to with their lives. And they probably don't want to spend in the headmaster's office. So, so then I'd send that person out, bring the other person in, and I'd do the same thing. And maybe, depends on what they say, they might both come back in and they'd both say something to each other. And if I'd say to one, would that fix the problem? Yes. And I'd say to the other, would that fix the problem? Yes. Okay. Do you have to do anything else? Yeah, I think we better go talk to the teacher. But it's all their self-determination. We have to empower their ability to make something of themselves. That's the whole thing. That's great. I think you've actually answered my other question, which was what to do as parents if maybe we haven't given our child this space to develop their own talents and their own view of the world. And what if we were coming to this later and we want to make changes? And I think your answer, it sounds like, would be just open it up now. Empower them now. Be curious about them, give them ownership of their lives and their conflicts, and just make that change at any time. Right. And we're not giving this to them. They have it. Their inclination to self-determine. They come into the world with it. We're respecting it. We're appreciating it, working with it. Exactly. We're acknowledging that it has been theirs the whole time. There was a, a quote that I actually shared yesterday, and it got a very big response on one of my pages. It's from Seth Godin. It's, it just sounds spot on for your book, The Genius in Every Child, and also the work that I do with infants and toddlers and preschoolers. He says, my proposed solution is simple. Don't waste a lot of time and money pushing kids in directions they don't want to go. Instead, find out what weirdness they excel at and encourage them to do that. Then get out of the way. And I agree with that, except the get out of the way part. Yes, don't be in the way, but go hand in hand or, or you know, at least follow them. Or I am not for leaving your kids alone so much as building a relationship with them that respects their autonomy and their drive for self-determination. And you have to play your role, which is to set boundaries maybe sometimes. They're actually looking to you who has what 30 to 40 years of experience to know stuff that they don't know. Yes, I am a scientist. Yes, I will investigate the world. Yes, I'm going to determine my own life. But you know, you know a lot more. So you could whisper something in my ear. Not wanting to be an authoritarian doesn't mean you ought to keep your mouth shut. You have all sorts of things you can tell them about what might be a better move as long as you're not implying that they're not very good at making decisions. But, but have a relationship with them. Make sure they know they're loved. They need to know that you've got their back. Absolutely. And I would also add that as parents, if we can learn to let go of those worries and the hovering and that super interventionist approach, we can enjoy who our child is. It's a process of discovery. It's much more fun as a parent than trying to second guess and maybe fail because I've spent a lot of money putting you into this and putting you into that thing that I thought would be the best and it didn't work. So we can free ourselves of all of that. A wonderful thing about parents today that I've noticed is that they want to be more involved and that's great. You can be so involved, as you're saying, in an enjoyment and fostering level. That's so healthy and wonderful for your child and it, it builds an amazing relationship. It doesn't need to be, well, either I'm involved and I'm hovering and taking over, or I'm not involved at all. 
I'm out of the way and I don't care about them and I'm just standing back. No, as you said, we can be right there observing and supporting if we can work on taking our worries out of the picture. If we can take our own, oh, I've got a better idea for how these blocks should go out of the picture. If we just put these blocks over here, I could teach them red because there's a red one. I know that I get so many great ideas as a teacher with young children when they're playing and I feel them all coming up and I try to pause and tell myself, oh no, just wait and see. And they always surprise you with something much more interesting because it comes from them. This can be the joy of parenting, watching our child unfold, what Seth Golden calls the weirdness or you call the genius. Yes. I love Magda Gerber's magic word, wait, too. So waiting a little first, because they may figure it out in a different way. So just being in that more responsive mode. Now I see my child is really stuck, and I've given it that wait moment or two. And now maybe I can give them some kind of minimal guidance so that they can do more. Well, Rick, I just want to tell everyone, if you haven't already, please check out Rick's book, The Genius in Every Child. I'll be linking to it in the transcript, and I've been recommending it on my website for forever. You'll find that, again, it's very compatible with everything that I talk about in early childhood, but it really takes it a step further because of Rick's incredible experience as a school head and an inspirer of not only children, but adults and teachers, and uh, he's a blessing. So thank you so much, Rick, and we'll do it again, I hope. Good, I hope so too. It's always good to talk to you. And I'd also like to say thank you again to Noom for sponsoring this podcast. Start your trial today at noom.com slash respect. Also, both of my books are available in paperback at Amazon, No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame, and Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting. You can get them in ebook at Amazon, Apple, Google Play, or Barnes & Noble, and in audio at audible.com. Thank you so much for listening. We can do this.